Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about one of our favorite topics, it seems. I didn't realize how many we've already talked about, but we're going to talk about another triangle. We do love that particular shape. (laughs) We love a good triangle. (laughs) Well, because I don't think there's many, like, paranormal. (laughs) Paranormal. (laughs) There's not many paranormal other shapes. They're not like the spooktacular square. You're right. You're right. So spooky comes in triangles. Yes. So we've already talked about the Bermuda Triangle, which then led to me getting a bar called the Barmuda Triangle. As it should. As it should. And then also the Bennington Triangle that we talked about last May. And we've discovered another one that what put us into many rabbit holes again, where we completely went off topic of what we initially thought we were going to make this episode about. Yeah, we had a really fun episode. And now we have a very intense episode. Also very fun. But I don't know if you're aware of this listener, but Amanda and I don't generally do like one, two, three episodes of the same topic, with the exception of the Texas Killing Fields, where it was like a 70,000 part series, right? Where we covered each part in a bite. (laughs) And that's how we're going to do this, too. But we're going to not do it quite like that, because there's just so much here. Yeah. Today, we have 16 pages. (laughs) So what we're going to cover today is the Bridgewater Triangle, and it's located in southeast Massachusetts. The area was first called the Bridgewater Triangle by Lauren Coleman in their 1983 book, Mysterious America. It was inspired by, you guessed it, the Bermuda Triangle. (laughs) (laughs) I would actually say, though, this one's weirder. As we were researching, I was like, I've never heard of this area. Massachusetts? I'd never heard of Massachusetts. Ever. <laughs> Never ever in my life. No, it, it. I think it's weird because it's on land. Like, it seems like it's easier to get to. So that makes it like in your brains a little scarier. Because like the Bermuda Triangle, even though it's very close, realistically, you're like, oh, it's so far away. Oh, you need to be flying over it or, you know, on a boat through it. But this, you could just like walk into it, and not know that you're stuck. I think that is true, that it's a little bit more unnerving when you could accidentally stumble upon it. Yeah. Versus having to go by boat or air near the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. It just seems less attainable, like for the Bermuda Triangle versus this. So this is the everyman's triangle. This is the everyman's triangle. Exactly. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) So Coleman established some loose boundaries of this triangle. And the three points are in Rehoboth, which is like the southwest part. Abington, which is the northern part, and Freetown, which is the southeastern part. So within that is the spooky place. The spookiest of places. The spookiest of places. So some people, though, think that it's larger than what Coleman envisioned. And they just see that as like a good starting framework for it. So I almost wonder, like, does it grow? Because it seems like everything that happens in here is just weird. But then like a little weirder than your average weird, if that makes any sense, you'll see. I think so. I think that it probably has expanded over time. 
It grows. What if the Bermuda Triangle's growing, Lindsay? I mean. <laughs> so Coleman described the Bridgewater Triangle as a, quote, window area of unexplained occurrences. So like Lindsay mentioned, this will be a couple parts because there's so many different things to talk about. And then just as a note, it won't be back to back, though. So we do have some other topics coming in between. So before we get into the strange occurrences inside the Bridgewater Triangle, we wanted to talk a bit about the history. Lots of the lore about what happens and why is tied up into what had happened in that area in the past few centuries. Before the American Revolution, Massachusetts was known as Plymouth Colony. I think one of the most prevalent parts of history that is talked about in a lot of the lore and in the locations of where there have been occurrences are tied up with King Philip's War. Shamefully, I'd never heard of that and I didn't really know what that was. We looked into it because we wanted to make sure that we were accurately portraying what happened. A lot of times how people describe the war is skewed by the fact that the colonists won. Yeah. And I saw a lot of resources say that the Native American chief at that time was the aggressor, which to me is just 100% wrong. Like, that's just not true. And then just to set the tone of the zeitgeist of relationships between the colonists and Native Americans at that time, during the first 75 years of the 17th century, the Native population of New England dropped by 92.5%. That's crazy. Around the start of the 17th century, 140,000 down to just 10,000. It's bad. That's horrific. But so King Philip's War lasted from 1675 to 1677. And the battles were between the second generation of English colonists in New England and the Native nations that were there. Most of the sources that we saw that talked about the Bridgewater Triangle described the conflict as having been started by the elected chief of the Wampanoag Nation. And his name was Medicom, but it was called King Philip by the colonists, which is very odd to me. It's very weird because when I first looked at it, too, and I was like, King Philip, what? And then, yeah, I was like, who is that? It didn't make any sense to me. And so, yeah. Interesting. So before the war, in 1662, the then chief of the Wampanoag Nation, Wamsutta, died. This was actually Metacom's brother. He died pretty soon after he had had a meeting with Josiah Winslow. And Winslow was the governor of the Plymouth Colony at that time. So he met with Winslow, came home, and died pretty soon after. Medicom thought that Winslow had poisoned him, which I feel like is pretty reasonable, right? Like if you meet with an adversary, yeah, share a meal or any type of ingestible thing and then the person dies soon after, you're going to be a little bit suspect. For sure. So, okay, this is 1662 and Medicom is already suspicious and already in living in a world where colonists have not been kind to native populations. So years later, Winslow decides that he wants to expand the Plymouth colony into the native territory. In addition to taking lands, he also wanted to govern native populations by colonist laws and their justice system. Medicom tried to negotiate with Winslow about the lands that he was trying to take, but he wasn't successful. And that's already ridiculous. He's trying to negotiate with someone that's just taking, right? Yes, yes. And here's the thing. This was a direct breach of the Pilgrim-Wampanoag Peace Treaty that had been ratified between Medicom's father and the first governor of Plymouth Colony. So per that treaty, the parties agreed to help one another, respect land boundaries, and that each could punish their own citizens for crimes. And it's this last one that gets really important when we talk about how this conflict started. Medicom was discussing the attack of colonies with other chiefs of other nations. And one of the colonists, John Sossamon, told the colonists about this after he had overheard it. 
And just as a note, Medicom did get two thirds of the Native nations in New England to support him throughout the conflict. Some natives did decide to go live with the colonists and they would adopt their way of dress, the language, and a lot of them also would adopt Christianity at that time. And Sossaman was one of those natives. Before moving to the colonies, Sossaman had been an interpreter for Medicom and an advisor. Native Americans who had actually moved to colonies didn't completely cut off ties, from what I understand, with the Native populations that they had been a part of, but they would act as interpreters and or help with like land negotiations. Mm-hmm. So right after Sossaman delivers this news, right, that they're planning an attack, he's found dead. In the months following, they're not able to find anybody who knows what happened. Then, all of a sudden, Winslow produces eyewitnesses and charges three Wampanoag council members. They're tried in the justice system in the colonies. Then they're sentenced to death and hanged in the colonies on June 8th of 1675. So we're at two violations of this treaty now, right? Right. And it's these hangings that sparked the first attack, which was against the Swansea colony on June 24th of 1675. There is so much to talk about with this particular war. One of the things that I do think is interesting to note is a lot of what is out there is from the colonist perspective. I found very little from Native population sources. And I like really I did my best to like try to find Native voices when we were speaking about this. Yeah. But during the conflict, other nations that sheltered noncombatants were attacked by the colonists. And I think the biggest example of this is the Narragansett Nation that lost over 600 people, including women and children who were non-combatants in the Great Swamp Fight of 1675. So the conflict lasted over a year and moved across New England between various colonies and native nations. Medicom was killed in 1675 by Benjamin Church after he had already captured Medicom's wife and son. After the conflict had ended, surviving natives were sold into slavery, pushed onto the reservations, or moved to other nations. Yeah, and I saw something, too, that Medicom's wife and son was probably sold into slavery as well. Yeah. Just sad. It's disgusting. That's the better term. Yeah. So estimates of the number of casualties vary widely. For settlers, I've seen that it was between 500 and 2,500. And then for the native populations, it was 3,000 to 5,000. So just crazy amounts of people lost. And I also saw that the casualties relative to the the population, this is the bloodiest conflict, battle, war that has ever occurred on U.S. soil. Right. And this isn't talked about. Yeah, I was like, and the fact that we'd never heard about this is mind-blowing. And so we talk about this because where this conflict started was in the Bridgewater Triangle. Yeah. And a lot of people say it became the Bridgewater Triangle because of how many deaths happened during this time. And almost like it was cursed in a way. And like the bad vibes from all of this stayed. And then anything that was constructed after the fact already had like a negative tinge to it. I've also seen the opposite. Interesting. Where this happened here because there was some darkness on this land already. Yeah, that's true. And I was like, that's really interesting. It's a little bit of a chicken and egg situation. But normally when you hear there's bad energy because of the native population before, it it, it just sounds fake. But here, it's not necessarily because of the native population. It's because there was a bloody war that happened. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of people died. Yeah. And so when we look at it through that lens, by no means are we placing any blame or responsibility on native populations, but rather just saying any place where there's this much death. Yeah, this much negativity. There's going to be darkness, I feel like. Right. I think so, too. Yeah, I think that the energy in some situations stays. 
that's with any place that had any sort of battle or war or mass casualties. Exactly. Exactly. So we're going to talk about the various locations within the triangle where there have been reports, sightings, oddities, just strange occurrences. Generally, the things that are reported are phantom fires. First time I heard of this. (laughs) Yeah, basically, it looks like there's a fire somewhere at the distance. But then when people get close to where they think that they saw the fire, they don't see a fire or any evidence that there was even a fire. Very strange. And honestly, as we go through this, it may not be in today's, but... There are some fires that come up that are a little strange in certain locations. Mm -hmm. And we talked about orbs in our ghost episode. There's some that are unexplained. There are some that are dust particles. So it just depends on the situation. Some people have reported full body apparitions, which terrifying. I've seen a few individual stories when researching this of a man appearing in different places too throughout the entire triangle. And then just going away very quickly. Phantom drums. They will hear the distinct sound of drums where there is nothing that could create that sound. And I think noises that are unexplained are one of the scariest things because you just you don't know what to do in those situations. There's a lot of times when I feel like you can go, oh, trick a light, trick of this, trick of that. But sound. But sounds. One, if you hear it, you don't know if somebody else has heard it. Right. But also, I think there's a more visceral response. I feel like I'm more likely to go, eh, I thought I saw something. But when I hear something, that's completely different. Like, I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I know what I heard. Right, right. And then I know we already mentioned that that this is going to be a couple episodes. I just want to give a little tease of our next episode when we talk about this triangle. We're going to talk about some other additional locations and UFO sightings. And also there's cryptids in this area as well. So many. Yeah, I loved it. There there are some that I've never heard of. And then, of course, because we do everything, there are a couple of true crime stories that we'll discuss that have occurred within the triangle as well. So we always post our sources online after every episode. But for this one, we just wanted to say one of the most helpful things that we were able to find was a documentary from 2013 called The Bridgewater Triangle. And it had a lot of information about all of this. It also had a lot of interviews with people that have a lot of firsthand accounts of the things we'll be discussing. So we just thought it was very interesting. So let's start getting into the various locations within the Triangle where there have been reports of sightings and oddities. The first is King Philip's Cave. It's said that there's a particular cave within the Bridgewater Triangle that people believe was a place where Medicom took refuge at some point during the war. And people have reported seeing orbs and phantom fires there. Additionally, there's Anawan Rock, which is also tied to King Philip's War. It said that this marked the end of the war when a war chief of that time, Anawan, surrendered there. People have seen phantom fires and drums. They've also seen orbs and apparitions. Lots of people think that there are Native American spirits there. Luann Joy of Wailing City Ghosts, she wrote Dead Whispers, which is a collection of audio recordings during various paranormal investigations. And one of the investigations they had was at Anawan Rock. And they were there for a few hours. And she had her camera in her hands when she turned. It wasn't a video camera. I think it was just a normal camera for photos. Right. So she turned and she saw an apparition of an older man. And she said that he was translucent and appeared like sentient. Like he was like looking at her, inspecting her, like very much present in that moment. Yes. If you will. Yeah. Because I think sometimes you think of ghosts and it's like residual energy that's on a loop. Yeah, they're not aware that you were there. Yes, exactly. And so she thinks that it was actually Anawan. And so she looked down at her camera just to like 
click a picture, and when she looked back up, he was gone. There's also Andrew Lake, who wrote Ghost Hunting Southern New England, and he had participated in numerous investigations at Anawan Rock, and he said that he had heard people speaking Algonquin, phantom drums. He also did an investigation near the anniversary of the surrender, and when he was there, he said that they saw phantom fire several times for two to three minutes. So it wasn't just a flicker. It was a long, prolonged time. He also felt cold spots in a particular area. And then he later found out that that particular area is a place where people had seen apparitions of an elderly Native man. I think it's the the phantom fires. It's just like something brand new to me that I have never experienced. And I don't think I know anyone that has. But I can see that it would be very stressful, like, oh my gosh, there's a fire over there, and then going over there and seeing nothing, that's wild. And I think that that actually, that kind of, that experience of, I saw a thing, I must investigate, going to investigate that thing, and the thing not being there, is a common theme throughout the Bridgewater Triangle. Illusions, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah, yeah. So another place I'm going to talk about is Profile Rock. And it used to look like the profile of a person's face, but his nose fell off. So it may have been a sacred Native American site. And people report seeing orbs and phantom fires there as well. Another area is Dighton Rock, and that's located in Berkeley in a building. And it weighs 40 tons. Crazy that it's in a building. It was first in the Taunton River, but was moved in 1963 when the Coffer Dam was being constructed. It was moved to a park, and it has petroglyphs all over it. So petroglyphs are made by chiseling a rock with a stone chisel and a hammer stone. It was first written about in 1680, and historians have suggested that the carvings may be from either Native Americans, Phoenicians, Norse, or Vikings, or possibly the Portuguese. That's a lot of different things that it could be. Right? So we don't know. There's so much it could be. All we know is it's very, very old. Yeah. And so Dighton Rock is right across from a place called Grassy Island. In 1982, Edmund Delabar had an archaeological exploration on the grassy island, and what they found there was a Native American burial ground. When they opened the graves, a very strange thing happened. There was red ochre in it, and when it was exposed to the just open air, they described it as looking like it boiled and disappeared. Which seems pretty magical. Yeah. When you think about it, right? But then when you consider that this is likely 300 years that it had been underground and it being exposed to the air may have been like a natural reaction for what that particular substance was that was like with the body. So I thought that was interesting. People who take photos in that area say that they won't develop. That's weird. And Coleman, again, who actually coined the term Bridgewater Triangle, said that when he was there, Batteries of the cameras and the equipment he was using would malfunction. And this is like fresh batteries as always, right? Yeah, yeah. And this is located in the lower portion of the Bridgewater Triangle. Yeah, and that's something that we hear in a lot of haunted places is that electronics do not cooperate when something weird is happening. Yes. So there's also a few cemeteries in this area. One is the Mayflower Hill Cemetery in Taunton. And there's a grave marker that is a rocking chair for a four-year-old girl named Pearl French, who died from spinal meningitis on March 26th of 1882. People reported seeing Pearl in the rocking chair on her grave, as well as around the cemetery. You know, Lindsay, how I feel about rocking chairs. This is why. If a stone rocking chair rocked, you know it's haunted. You know. So people also in the cemetery report seeing orbs. Another cemetery is in Rehoboth, and there's a ghost of a little boy that asks people to not leave and to play with him. 
that actually makes me really sad. Right. I don't know how I would leave. No, no. I guess I live here now. There's also reports of a woman wearing white that hovers. Interesting. I feel like, remember, we, we talk about it. We've talked about it a lot, like a woman in white. Well, there is this triangle's woman in white. Here's my thing. Are they wearing white or is the apparition just white? We'll never know. Amanda, question for you. Yes. Uh, we're re- recording this on the evening of St. Patrick's Day. Yes. What does an Irish ghost drink on St. Patrick's Day? Oh, no. Um, I don't know. What do they drink? Booze. <laughs> I was trying to think more St. Patrick's Day like thoughts, but yeah, they, they do. You're welcome. I'm sorry. They do. <laughs> There's also reports of a man named Ephraim. Ephraim is seen wearing 19th century attire, and he's also spotted pounding the ground and crying. Also very, very sad. Other things that are seen in this area are what they call a vaporous form. And this happens when it's not humid. So there's not really an explanation to why it's happening. Another location is the Palmer River Meeting House. And from the Meeting House, some people have seen colonial soldiers in the nearby cemetery. They also have seen orbs and there's been some EVP sessions done there. And one of them got a woman who was dancing around and singing La La La, which I always love EVP sessions. I love listening to them after. Yeah. And then, you know, getting really, really scared, but then wanting to go again. (laughs) So when they did get the woman singing, there had been no ambient sound when it happened. They were unable to explain how they got a woman singing. So at one point, someone was able to capture another EVP in the middle of the afternoon. And what they did is they left the recorder on when they were leaving. And what they were able to capture was an EVP that said, you won't know your love for me as the person was leaving. And this EVP of a person has been dubbed the singing lady of Palmer River. I don't like that at all. (laughs) Well, I like that she was singing at one point. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. When you listen, she seems happy. Yeah. But when you listen to it, like the the way she's singing, it's like that la, 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 la kind of thing. She's having a good time, Lindsay. No one's ever having a good time in doing that. Also, as a ghost, won't you want to fuck with people? Like, I feel like I would love to just scare the shit out of everyone. Absolutely. If I'm going to haunt, I'm going to haunt. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to haunt it right. Yeah. When a person comes along, you must haunt it. Haunt it. Haunt it right. Anywho, let's talk about the Shad Pond Factory. So there was a nearby pond that used to be filled with shad. In 1894, there was a fire that burned the factory to the ground and it couldn't be saved. And the ruins of the factory still remain. Obviously, the fire has long since gone out, but there's lots of reports of people seeing fire on the building. People also see orbs and just random fires around the area, too. As far as the fires go, the ones that actually did happen and destroyed buildings, we're going to talk about more later. I was reading that this phenomenon has been happening in a lot of places with great sadness or like something terrible have happened there. And some people now are speculating that that much bad energy actually may have the potential to form a fire. I thought that was just wild. I'd never heard of that before. Yeah. I don't like the idea of negative energy creating more negative energy, though, right? Mm-hmm. Also an apparition of a darkly dressed man who seems very sad. Just a lot of sad ghosts around here. Poor ghosties. So there's also a house on North Central Street within the Triangle. And there was an investigation there by East Bridgewater's Most Haunted, which is a web series. And it's hosted by Ann Kerrigan. 
in the episode that talks about this specific house. Anne has her EVP specialist, Mike Markowitz, and he even published a book of EVPs. So in the 1800s, there was a Keith family and this was their home that they were in. And Anne said that when she was there, she smelled roses while she was upstairs and described that it was this perfumey smell. And family had also reported smelling this. And as she's talking about this rose-scented perfume, they picked up the sound of what they call a gunshot on the EVP, but it wasn't heard by anybody in the room. Listening to it myself, to me, it just sounds like someone's banging a door or they bumped into something. It doesn't sound like, you know, that sharp sound of a gunshot. Yeah. I mean, it sounded like a muted gunshot to me. Like if it was a gunshot, it was definitely muted. It wasn't like yeah, as loud as it would have been if it was actually nearby. That's true. That's true. I guess to me, I was like, when I think of a gunshot, I think of a loud gunshot because they're loud. I don't think of like, oh, like if I heard a gunshot two blocks away, like and that's kind of what it would have been. I feel like that it would have been quite a distance because it sounded again, it kind of sounded like somebody like closed a drawer hard. Right. So, Lindsay, we're going to talk about a couple of the local urban legends now. And I've already told Lindsay this, but I love the names of everything in this area. It it just sounds a lot more fun than all of the places in Arizona. (laughs) And Lindsay, um, how did you describe Arizona again? What what colors everything here? Fucking just real beige. A light, light brown just view. The whole place is beige. Like, I knew that. But then now that she said it, I'm like, you're right. Every single fucking thing is beige here. Well, I was like looking out the window and I was leaving the airport and I was like, I've never seen a place where they were like, we should make the buildings match the ground. Right? So boring. Like, I've never seen that. And it's like a pretty close comparison. Even the highway, like, on ramps that, like, go up. Mm -hmm. But even those are, like, that sandy brown color. Ours are, like, gray. Yeah. Yeah. They just want to make sure everything is matching. So they're like, we'll just use the same color for every damn thing here. Yeah. Brown brand. Hot as fuck and sandy brown, baby. Yep. That's us. So, Urban Legends. The first one is the Mad Trucker of Copacut Road. And it's mostly unpaved and it's a seven mile stretch that starts paved and then it becomes a dirt road as it goes further. There's a lot of that here too, by the way. So folks say a trucker will pull up behind you out of nowhere and then run you off the road. And investigators haven't heard any first person stories. So that was kind of weird. And I think they brought that up also on the documentary where they're like, it's always so-and-so's cousin's friend's sister. Yeah. It's never like... I had this happen to me. So we've talked about how urban legends kind of start in some of our episodes before this. And I think this might be one of them where like maybe it happened to someone and they couldn't quite understand what happened to them. And then each time it was told over and over again, something extra happened and then it became this. Yeah. So here's another one. The Rehoboth Seacon line and otherwise called the redheaded hitchhiker. Already scary. So Laura says that there's a redheaded hitchhiker that is looking to get a ride on Route 44 on the border of Seacon and Rehoboth. People see his reflection or possibly an apparition of him. And sometimes he just straight up shows up in the car or he changes the radio. I don't like that. Can you imagine driving and then there's just like this man in your car fucking with your radio? I would be like, I don't want to listen to this. He just like, he only plays Freebird. <laughs> No one says what he's changing it to, though. That's that's the real information I want. Yeah, I, I do want to know. <laughs> so typically, he's described as wearing the same look each time. And it's just jeans and a red flannel. And then he has thick, curly red hair. 
There's lots of lure, but there's never a direct person again. It's always like six people removed that have seen him. So, Lindsay, you know what we have to do? We have to get on the get. We have to get on the get. and We have to go find him. You know, look, I'm down to visit the Bridgewater Triangle. But of all the places we've talked about, I am the most scared of this one. Yeah? Yeah. There's too much. It's like there's no relief. You just you're like, I'm going to go for a walk. Ghosts. I'm going to go to the store. Ghosts. I'm going to sleep. Ghosts. Drive around. Ghosts. In your car. Or like, and I'm saying ghosts, but it's not just ghosts. It's like UFOs. And I don't like it. You have like, I have a deep and intense fear of UFOs, which is, I think, one of the reasons why I haven't been like, Amanda, let's do this because I need to be able to sleep at night (laughs) and I won't be able to sleep because I'll be like, I'm going to get abducted. And so there's a lot of, there's just too much. It's too much. It's too varied. But what about the Denver airport, Lindsay? What about their aliens? <laughs> that's conspiracies. That's that's rich in conspiracies. Or are they? <gasps> so one person claimed that he was driving to the airport during a snowstorm and he saw the reflection in his windshield. And this person that had this experience refused to share his name. Sketch. So there might have been one person that came into contact with this hitchhiker, but refuses to say who he is. Amanda, are you ready to get to what what I could only call the star of this episode? Oh, man. Yeah, I was researching this very late at night. And the pictures of this next place are haunting. Like, I want to go to there, but I also do not want to because everything is gorgeous and creepy, but also like a little too creepy in certain aspects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the Taunton State Hospital. It was Massachusetts' second facility for the mentally ill when it was built, and it was established in 1951 as the Taunton Lunatic Asylum, and it, it was designed and built by the Boyden and Ball Company in 1854. The hospital's design was based on the ideas of Dr. Thomas Kirkbridge, and his kind of vision for these types of facilities was that it was a place where patients could experience a rural setting with fresh air. And it would help people get healthier because they would also be able to use the grounds for occupational therapies. If only it was that. If only. The original campus encompassed 154 acres and expanded over the years. It reached over 40 buildings and structures. And it was described as kind of like a self-contained city. And it's huge. Even after it was abandoned, it's like massive and still scary. But I want to say like before we get into our next part, which is terrible, it seems like it was built to do good. So it's confusing how it immediately does not do that. So in some of these pictures, too, just to bring that back up, does it not remind you of like a little bit of American Horror Story? I mean, how could it not? Right. When we're talking about old timey horror mental asylums, that's where my brain goes now. Uh huh. It's just I mean, naturally, that's where it goes. But yes, it did. Well, not only Asylum, though, but also just like the brick and the way that it aged, it kind of reminds me of Murder House, the structure of it and the colors. And then, you know, at the end where it's kind of abandoned for a while, or actually, I should say at the beginning of that series where it's abandoned. Yes. That's the vibes it gave me, but then also Asylum vibes because of all the stories here. Yes, yes. No, it absolutely does. I mean, I think when you think large brick Asylum... What you're picturing, 
is spot on. Yes. Yes. And some of the corridors, too, because they wanted a lot of natural light. So everything has gigantic windows. And then they have like these curved areas that are absolutely gorgeous. So let's talk about how it was used. And just back when it was built, mental illness treatment during this time was vastly different than it is today. I thought you were just going to say fucked. Yeah. Yeah. Fucked. It was fucked. Absolutely, it was. So when people were put into these mental asylums, in part, they were kind of forgotten about. The intention of their families wasn't always to actually get them true, honest help. It was to get them out of the way or to hide them from society because they were shameful. And it is absolutely one of the saddest things that I read was how many people were actually just forgotten about and abused in horrific ways because something was different about them. It was just really sad. So on top of leaving these people at asylums, I learned that others were leaving them in disappointments rooms. And I obviously there's a movie, right? There was this article that just compared an actual disappointments room that the movie was based off of, and it was just really sad. So historically, disappointments rooms were used for parents who had a child with a disability, and they wanted to keep them secret from the rest of society. So they would hide them away in one of these rooms. And what actually like broke my heart is there are still cases of this happening now. Yeah, I had never heard of this until I watched the movie a few years ago. Yeah. And Ben and I watched it and we were like, is this a real thing? And looked it up. And lo and behold, like, It absolutely was, which I just don't understand how people do this. Like, I don't understand how you dehumanize somebody who you love in this way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if you want to look at, like, the person who's ill, the caller is from within your own body. If you can do this to your family or to anyone, truly, honestly. I was seeing that they're, I I don't want to say popular, but they're seen more frequently, I guess, in certain countries still. But then also here, like, in the last 10, 15 years, there's been, like, two or three cases I think I was able to find of this still being a thing. See, I just don't understand that because we live in a world where, like, you can, like, put a child up for adoption and such. You know, like, you don't have to keep your child if you don't want to. Like, there's places you can surrender your child. So why you would make this decision is beyond me. And just mind you, this isn't just limited to people with mental illness. It was also people with deformities or disabilities. And they would also be put in these situations or institutionalized. So what we saw when we were researching is that basically anyone people would have been ashamed of went to these asylums and they were just pretty much forgotten about. Patients were dehumanized by their families, then the staff and the medical professionals as well. People were malnourished, they were bound with shackles, they were beat, they were flogged, and then they were also experimented on. And there were some truly wild techniques that were considered effective at that time. And some of those techniques included solitary confinement, being submerged in water tanks, then being exposed to extreme cold, electroshock therapy, lobotomies, this one threw me for a loop, infusions of malaria-infected blood to induce a fever, which makes zero sense to me. And then there was something called a Utica crib. Had you heard of this before this? No, not, not before. Okay, so basically what it is, it's a crib for a person who's laying down. And it's made for adults. So think like... A mattress that is actually a cage is kind of what it looked like to me. And you couldn't stand up. And honestly, it didn't even look like you could really turn that much either. Not really. It looked small. Yeah. And 
It looked horrifically uncomfortable. Everything about this place is uncomfortable. Yes. So there was also two notoriously awful patients in this facility, one being Anthony Santo, and he suffered from hallucinations due to having scarlet fever. He confessed to murdering two of his cousins and a six-year-old girl, and he lured them into the forest. Then he killed them with a knife and also by stoning them, which is just awful way to die. Yeah. The other person, I'd heard of her before, but I didn't know much about her before researching. And her name was Honora and went by Jolly Jane Mm -hmm. Toppin. And she was a nurse. And she confessed to a minimum of 31 murders after she was arrested in 1901. Jesus. She conducted painful experiments on patients. And in addition to murdering patients, she murdered her landlord and foster sister. There's also an infamous quote from her. And it's, my desire is to kill more people more desperate people, from every man and every woman who has lived to this day. Oof. Creepy as hell. Yeah. Speaking of creepy as hell, there were also rumors of a satanic cult being present in the hospital during all of this. So the cult supposedly included both nurses and doctors who tended to the patients. And I've also seen some sources that say the patients were involved as well, like as willing participants. Oh, wow. That's wild. Mm Mm-hmm. There were weird markings reported, and there were also rumors that people were sacrificing themselves to the devil. So the way that I saw that characterized as they were, it was like suicide for the devil is what I saw. And I was like, bizarre. Cult members would drag patients down to the basement to conduct dark rituals and human sacrifices. And some of the people that had lived in this area at the time, I had seen that they had reported that they would constantly hear screams. And that led to eventually people looking into this. But they would hear not only like screams of people that were unwilling to be there, but like screams of torture. And then it would just stop. And then people suspected that they'd get them into the basement. And that's when the screaming would stop. I mean, I would also imagine if you were being submerged underwater, it would stop. If you died during a lobotomy, it would stop. Yeah, I don't know if it was just like the time frame or something, but they suspected it was like during these cult behaviors. I mean, that makes sense. So no arrests were ever made. And there is a cemetery very close to the hospital. I believe it's the Mayflower Hill Cemetery. There are numbered graves for the people who died but were never claimed. And like we said, families basically wanted to discard people when they left them there. And so they didn't return if they died or at all. Mm -mm. Or at all. Yeah, didn't visit nothing. And not surprisingly, people who live nearby did not like the idea that there was a cult that was operating in this hospital. And so once they were exposed, the staff would attempt to go downstairs. And it said that they wouldn't be able to get to like the actual basement because a force would stop them. And some say Satan himself was there. We're going to get into more of just how much people were blaming things on Satan when it comes to the Bridgewater Triangle. Because I think that's another unique element of this. They don't just say there's ghosts. They don't just say there's cryptids. They don't just say paranormal. It's specifically Satan. Mm -hmm. Yep. That comes up a lot. And that's not typical. No. So all of this awfulness, for lack of a better phrase, went on until the 1940s. And it was during this time the general public became more aware of what was going on in these state facilities. And that led to widespread reform in the psychiatric industry. And I will point out, too, that part of this reform was the end of the practice of institutionalizing patients without their will for an indefinite period of time. 
And that was from 1967 when Reagan signed the Lanterman-Petrus Short Act. And that's when the switch became the most noticeable, I think, in mental health and how it was treated. There also are still barbaric practices like conversion therapy. Yes. Yes. My gosh. Every time you hear one of those, don't you? You're just like, in what fucking world? Yes. So I think when you were just describing all of this, like kind of happening around the 40s, I think that's also when the cult may have been exposed. And that may have also led to this one being closed. In 1975, the main part of the hospital was closed and then abandoned. And only small sections were still there and still functioning. In the early 90s, the state had a $19 million improvement plan for the sections of the campus that were not yet abandoned. And I saw, too, that it might have been partly due to the reputation of this area, why they gave so much for the improvement projects. And then in 1999, there was this big dome that was in the middle of the administration building. And the dome collapsed and everything was just not able to be repaired after this in this uh, area. So then a few years later, in 2006... There was a fire in the area of where the dome had collapsed, and this had started a lot of rumors as to how the fire began. People are not sure if it was some sort of arsonist or like kids messing around or if somehow this fire started on its own. I mean, fair, though, because especially because like we know what's happened there. Right. It's just like, mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In 2009, the asylum building was demolished. And as they were getting ready to demolish it, what they did is they took anything they could make money off of and auctioned it off right before the demolition. And I can't help but imagine every single thing that was auctioned off was super duper haunted and terrifying. <laughs> like it had to be haunted as fuck. It really did. It There's just there's no way it wasn't. Yeah, it was like hospital equipment from what I saw. There was like furniture. There was railing like anything they could auction. They auctioned. Yeah, which I doesn't surprise me at all. And then in 2012, the last remaining part of the facility that was still operating was closed by the state. Once it was closed, it was then kind of reorganized in a sense, and it was used as a woman's recovery from addiction program administered by the High Point Treatment Center. Some of the new, newer buildings are still in use today, and they are operating under a number of different things, one being the Taunton State Hospital. And I saw that the grounds are not open to the public, but then I've seen people be able to go and visit certain parts of it. So I'm a little skeptical. I went on Google Maps and was kind of like looking around. And the first thing that comes up that I was able to see is like the recovery area. But you can't really move as much as I wanted to be able to. And when I was messing around with the Google Maps there and you put in the address, which is 60 Hodges Avenue, it looks like there are a couple different facilities that are still functioning. And the government site for it does say that they are hiring for like nurses and things. Oh, yeah. So as we've talked about, there's lots of paranormal reports of things happening here as well. And we're going to start with some of the reports from the Goss building. There's the reports of a ghost of a man wearing white on the third floor. There are also other ghosts that people have reported in the building. Outside on the grass, people have reported seeing an apparition of an elderly man. People have also said they've been touched by apparitions and that they've heard screams. Terrifying. Yeah. So there's also reports of creatures or figures that leave strange shapes or symbols or legible text that people have seen. And lastly, people also report moving shadows in the basement, which, surprise, surprise, is the most active place for sightings and the sound of footsteps where there is no one. 
Sue Coletta, a crime writer, visited the site and asked about the serial killer we had talked about. And she was told that the staff were not allowed to talk about her. And in her article, she basically just like for shorthand said they acted sketch as fuck. They followed her around the entire time she was there. They told her she couldn't take photos, even though there was no sign saying you couldn't. So surprise, surprise, she took photos anyway. She talks about like leaving pretty soon because like they were following her the entire time. And that there were people who were like in plain clothes that didn't look like security guards that were following her. But it was like pretty clear that's what they were doing. That's very weird. It is very weird because you know what's weird? The whole fucking <laughs> triangle is weird. There. So, Amanda, so far, Bridgewater Triangle is something up. I think so. I don't know if it's just this whole area needs to be left to whatever the hell started it. Mm-hmm. But something's weird. Something's wrong. There's a lot of scary stuff happening. And like you said, like spooky places, like great. But I feel like going to this spooky place is like just a next level spooky. I agree. And as intense as these photos are, especially of like where the asylum was, I don't know how I would feel being there. You know, like I am very interested and I would love to explore. I know the really old buildings got torn down, but like I would love to explore it and kind of, I don't know, do something there. But then on the other hand, it's just, it's very sad. And it seems like everyone who has lost their life there after is extremely sad and not able to move on in a sense. You know, like that feeling of just sadness and torture and just horrible things happening. Yeah, well, and I think that's kind of the theme of the Bridgewater Triangle is that it's not just like spooky haunted in a fun way. It's it's sad. Very few entities there that seem happy. And I think that is one of the unique things about it. Like, I wonder, maybe I'd visit it, but I don't think I'd stay the night. Right? Yeah, because it's just a whole nother level of spooky. When we talked about the Bennington Triangle and, you know, the most famous, the Bermuda Triangle, you go missing, I guess, is like the scariest part of it is like, oh, you might go missing in these areas. But this one's just like the feelings of torture and the horrible things that happened on this land and all of that. I don't know. It's just... It's a different level. Yeah. It's so much in one space. It's, you know what it is? It's concentrated, which is why they're calling it a triangle to begin with, is because there's all this stuff happening in one spot. But yeah, I've just, I've never heard of this much anywhere. Right. And this is only part of it. This is only a small part of it. We have more. So that might be it too, as we're just wrapping our head around all the other things that are to come and putting it in this little fucking triangle and (laughs) saying, don't go there. Yeah. And just as a teaser, we've got three more episodes planned on the Bridgewater Triangle that we're going to pepper in the next couple of months because there is a lot. And, you know, we originally we were trying to pack everything in today and we were like, okay, this will be like a six hour episode if we try to do everything all at once. So maybe we'll split some of this up. Mm -hmm. If you have been to the Bridgewater Triangle and have experiences, please tell us. Yes. If it's on something we haven't covered yet, we might work it into the episode. So let us know for sure. Yep. So let's move on to a couple little fun things real quick. We are only one week away from our Patreon game night, our first Patreon game night of I'm hoping many. I'm so excited. I am too. I am actually really looking forward to it. And I think it's going to be a really fun night. We have some new merch up in our store that I'm pretty obsessed with. Same, same. We started recording very late today because we got on a design kick of making new merch today. We did. We totally did. We got on a design kick and we would not be stopped. No. And (laughs) we got that all done. And then we also have our tote giveaway going on. So if you haven't entered, check out our social media to find all of the rules and fun stuff in entering. Very easy ways to enter, by the way, too. It's not as hard as some of these other giveaways I've seen. 
Yeah, sometimes they're like, jump through a flaming hoop. Yeah. Tag 70 people. We are quick and easy. Oh my gosh. Have you seen the ones where they're like, follow everyone I follow to enter? And you're just like, never. And you unfollow them. Uh, We're not doing that. I don't unfollow them, but I'm like, I won't be like, you have about, I'm offended. 15 seconds of my attention. If I can't do it in 15 seconds, I'm out. (laughs) Uh, Our ways are be a Patreon is one. The benefits of that are endless. You know, you could do that. You could We have a Facebook post and an Instagram post. You can comment on both of those posts. Both of those say giveaway. It's very large. You can also tag us in your Instagram stories. And I don't know if we said it before, but you can tag us an unlimited amount of times. You want to tag us in stories 50,000 times? Go for it. But keep in mind, you can't just share a post. You have to like specifically add us in your story or we won't know about it. Yes, it won't tag us. And if we don't know about it, we can't give you credit, which we would like to do. Yep. We have a very intense spreadsheet tracking everybody's entries. So, yeah. And then we'll do a big wheel at the end. Yeah. And these totes are big enough to hold all of your haunted items from what I've been hearing. Mm -hmm. And maybe a small cryptid or two. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe a couple. Who can know? Yeah. So if you have any questions, thoughts, feelings on any of this, let us know. Concerns, quandaries. We're... (laughs) we're excited about all of these things so with that have a good weekend thanks for creeping with us thanks for listening for more information on our sources please visit our website truecreeps.com if you'd like to follow us on social media you can follow us on instagram at truecreepspod on facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod and on twitter at truecreeps We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 